everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. All right, Great Heresies, Wycliffe and the Lollards. And uh, a couple moments to talk about this, I want to, at least for briefly, about the, uh, the series itself. When I, whoop. Um, introduction to this, and I mentioned uh, um, uh, before this that I wanted to talk about heresy. If you guys most probably know what heresy is, but I, the idea was I would talk about this. Um, heresy, we don't know, descends from the Greek word heresis, which means choice, right? So you've made the wrong choice the, in the church's judgment, and that's what uh, heresy is. You know, why great heresies? Again, before the, I started talking, I mentioned Hilaire Belloc's book, Great Heresies. Um, I think most people here are pretty, are pretty faithful Catholics, so you don't have a problem with this. But a lot of people today do have a problem with this, so I did want to talk about it. Um, as an historian, I have to say, when we talk about, uh, we talk about you know, great heretical movements, we tend to, I, I, again, popular understanding, you're a faithful Catholic, like this is a bad thing, it's terrible. One of the things that I've, you study church history long enough is you learn that the church learns from great heretical movements. Um, the church doesn't actually give a lot of definitions of what it believes until there's a crisis normally. And so, uh, and usually, and we, you know, give a talk in the fall about uh, the Aryan crisis. That was a major turning point where the church had to sort of flesh out, okay, what do we mean when we say, um, you know, Jesus became, you know, God became man, those sorts of things. Uh, but I thought worthwhile to start a sort of running series. It won't be every week, every month, but we're going to talk about some more of these. Um, and quite frankly, talking about Wycliffe, uh, why him? Um, partly because he is—he's uh, kind of, as you'll see, he's predictive of some of the things that um, you'll see in the Reformation. Some of his ideas or anticipations of of Luther's teaching and some of the other reformers, which is interesting. But as you're going to see, he's not actually doesn't. Well, we'll get to his influence, but he's not necessarily connected with any of those reformers. And just finally, just a note on getting the faith wrong. I did want to come back to this as well because I think about this a lot. About um, um, about okay, what does it mean to get the faith wrong? Uh, because I think you think um, when you think of like we got the faith wrong, like you you got something wrong, you like you missed an ex- uh, a question on an exam, right? Like you forgot. Well, I forgot the creed or something. I didn't know this. As I've learned examining my own life, prayer life, and things that I trying to learn about the faith. A lot of times, um, you know. Getting the faith wrong isn't a matter of intellectual, like you're not making mistakes. It's kind of as the name suggests, you're, it's more of a matter of will. Uh, it's more a matter of like you, you know, trying to discipline your, um, well, your passions, your mind, your thoughts. One of the things I've come to think about the Christian life is that mostly your, your job is ascetic and not intellectual. Your job isn't to like know everything about the faith. Your job is to, you know, you have attachments to things that are wrong. Right, and you need to get, have those taken away from you, and you need to learn to you know love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. Things that are bad for you, you you know have that uh, on the way there. And I'm mentioning all this because I think there's something to this in the story of Wycliffe and his followers, who are called the Lollards, which we'll get to in a moment. Who uh, indeed, as Joe mentioned, yeah, it has to do with mumbling and, and stuff like this. So, without further ado, that, that little brief uh, intro. So this takes place in the 1300s. This is very much um, the, uh, the crisis of Wycliffe and the Lollards. It really is a 14th century crisis. 
and you really can't understand why his teachings um, become as popular as they do, or why it spawns a, a movement, unless you understand something about 14th century England. Uh, and the first thing to note about the 14th century with the wider church is that, of course, um, the papacy moves in 1309. If you didn't know this, uh, Clement V uh, was the pope, um, becomes pope in 1308, um, basically up and packs off the papal court to Avignon in, um, in southern France, which is papal territory. He did this partly because he was a French uh, cardinal before he became pope. And uh, what this does is they basically, he does this partly to escape the influence of aristocratic factions in Rome who are, you know, they vie for the papacy, they make life kind of miserable. Um, you can get away from that. Uh, Avignon is very distant from all this. Uh, however, of course, he's also French. And I don't have time to go, go into it in here, but uh, in the uh, few years before he became pope, there was a real nasty fight between uh, Boniface VIII, the pope at the time, and the uh, king, Philip the Fair, Philip IV of France. And um, this led to a lot of unhappiness uh, in people about places like England and, uh, and the Holy Roman Empire, Germany, for uh, modern, modern terms sake. Uh, led to accusations that you know the Pope was becoming a French lackey because he was so close, of course, to French territory. Which, by the way, most uh, historians, modern historians, think this is not true. Um, the Popes who were ruled from Avignon actually were fairly, they were, for the most part, good Popes, actually. Conscientious administrators. Um, maybe one or two of them were hotheads. I don't think any of them were terribly venal. They actually ruled the church fairly well. Um, but eventually, of course, they can't stay away from Rome forever. Even though, of course, they have problems in Rome uh, under the influence of St. Catherine of Siena, by the way, uh, who directs Gregory XII, uh, returns to Rome in 1377. And I'm only going to mention this because you'll get this next time in the next lecture. Uh, he dies the next year. Um, uh, Urban VI is elected, and almost immediately the cardinals regret their decision. Uh, they can't really stand the guy. He was—he really did have some problems at Urban VI. And in, uh, in a, um, a bid to sort of undermine his influence, they uh, held another conclave and elected an anti-pope in 1378, which will begin the Great Western Schism. And I'm mentioning all this because all this is going in the background. Of, this is very much feeds into um, the uh, episode with John Wycliffe. Um, there's a lot of confusion in the church uh, in the 1300s, is my point, and the reason we mention all this. Secondly, the other major, uh, oh, this is, I had to show you this. This is the papal uh, palace at Avignon. I've been there, that's how I had to show it to you. Uh, it's actually wonderful if you ever get a chance to go there, you should. It's well-preserved. Actually, the city itself is a, I think, they, I think they got rid of the gates, but I think the, the walls are still there. It's a pretty perfectly preserved medieval city. Uh, papal palace is really nice. Uh, state property now, after the revolution, of course, but that's what it looks like. Um, the second thing is the uh, political conflict, which we call the Hundred Years' War. Which, if you don't know anything about this, it doesn't actually go doesn't actually go for a hundred years straight. Actually, it's more than a hundred years that this goes on and off. Obviously, um, brief history. If you don't know, England was conquered um, by the Norman French in 1066. Um, they had an empire in Europe. Um, Long story short, it gets reconquered by the French in 1214. But in the 1330s, King Edward III of uh, England resurrects the English claim to the French throne. And he does this as much as any reason uh, I can think. Uh, again, partly to unite the realm and partly to, um, well, partly to go on and do great works or whatever. This is what medieval kings are supposed to do is fight wars. Um, in fact, Edward III, if you don't know, after the Normans conquered England in 1066, the aristocracy spoke French. They were French. 
it was Edward III who actually made the decision to have his court start speaking English again. So this was all part of this plan to, again, bolster his power in the kingdom. And uh, for the few, first few decades of this conflict, it goes very well for the English. Major battles, the Battle of Cressy, uh, um, Poitiers and Cressy in the 1340s and 1360s, um, lead to English victories. They carve out, I'll show you the maps in a second, they carve out a fairly uh, large portion of France for themselves again. But starting in the 1360s, there's a, a peace treaty signed in 1360, late 1360s, um, um, the uh, French begin to turn uh, the tide uh, against the English. And by the 1380s, basically, they've kicked them out of everywhere except for Calais, one little city on the coast. Uh, and this is also going to be very important for understanding the background to Wycliffe because don't think he could have had as much influence if it hadn't been this... Um, uh, this failure of English policy, and again, you're wondering about all this, this doesn't sound like theology, you're going to find that basically every sort of great uh, theological crisis tends to have a political aspect to it. Um, but this is the time period, especially the 1380s, when Wycliffe is uh, at its height, basically, as, a, as an author. So the Hundred Years' War is in the background of this. Uh, here you can see the two maps side by side. This is English before 1337, Battle of Cressy. After 1360, uh, they carve out that big green territory in the south, and Aquitaine, and um, again, it all goes away by basically 1389, except for Calais up in the north. All right. Okay. You also have in the back of all this the effects of the Black Death, which, of course, you know, the bubonic plague spreads from Asia by ships to Italy and then spreads its way up to England in the 1370s. And uh, long story short, we, we have estimates about how many people die. Europe had about 50 million people uh, or so by the, four, by the 1300s. We think around about a third maybe people were killed um, in the Black Death, which, um, which, by the way, is actually a great thing for the people who are left. I hate to say that, but for the peasantry, it's great. Why? Because now there's a labor shortage. And so that means they have to pay you more. Uh, and we do, and we know this, by the way, because virtually every medieval parliament, every medieval governing body that passes laws, uh, tries to pass wage control laws to cap wages, none of which work, by the way. It causes a black market. People start leaving their, <laughs> leaving their, their farms, and they start going and finding work. Um, it also leads, and this is directly related to not just the Black Death, but also to the Hundred Years' War that's going on in the midst of all this. Uh, it leads, of course, you can have the French especially the French that's fallen on their soil, but the English as well, trying to impose taxes on a wider uh, swath of their population than they had before. And this will lead to numerous, not just tax revolt, by the way, against the government, but also against the church, uh, across Europe in the 1340s, 50s, uh, 60s, and mo most particularly, we'll get to this, in 1381 in England, the so-called Great Revolt, or the Peasants' Revolt, occurs in 1381, directly related to a tax that's tr uh, tried to be imposed upon them by the government, so you have the Black Death um, uh, um, featuring in this. And this is just a map of where it spreads. You kind of get the idea. It gets to London, uh, gets to London by, the 13, by 1348. It takes a little while to get to the rest of England, but it, it's there and has an effect, obviously. Okay. Finally, one other thing that's becoming prominent in uh, Western Europe at the end of this period and in England um, is anti-clericalism. There is a lot of, there's a lot of anger, especially at the higher rung of the clergy. Um, 
and this is, again, this is probably inevitable. Um, the uh, cardinals, the bishops of the church are called princes of the church for a reason. They are literally, I mean, for example, in Germany, right, in the Holy Roman Empire, they literally are princes. They have secular roles as princes. Uh, to be a, a cardinal is to be someone who has a very important role in society outside the church. And so they tend to be very wealthy. Uh, but their anger is uh, anger at other things. At the tithe, of course. Uh, tithing was mandatory um, back then, like today. Uh, people didn't like having to do that. Um, and just in general, there's a lot of anger about the wealth, uh, especially, again, of the upper rank of the clergy. There was also something, and this, is, this might actually merit its own, its own lecture at some point. There was also a major debate in the early part of the uh, 1300s, um, which is sometimes called the debate on evangelical poverty. And this had to do with a, a branch of the Franciscans, um, came to call themselves the spirituality, the spiritual Franciscans, who um, they took a real extreme, or you could say purist line, on um, the teachings of St. Francis. And their idea basically was that the Gospels indicate that basically the church should own no property whatsoever. It should be like Jesus walking around, going from house to house, that sort of thing. And um, this caused no end, uh, and of course, you take that line, that's almost, even if you didn't intend it that way, that's at least, at the bare minimum, an implicit criticism of the hierarchy. The spirituality, were not, they were not shy about making it explicit. <laughs> there were major, major rows over this. Um, eventually, it was condemned by John XXII in the 1330s, if I'm not mistaken, where the uh, spiritual friends, this, this, this notion, by the way, is, is heretical, that the church cannot own property, basically, at this point. Um, and yet, of course, it didn't actually close down. It didn't really do anything to... The debate was over in that sense, but um, it didn't stop people um, criticizing uh, the clergy. And this had to do partly because you do have the growth, finally, of illiterate laity by the 14th century. Um, this is the age of Chaucer, by 1400 writes his Canterbury Tales. Before this, you have... Well, you have people, other English authors, John Gower, if you know what that is. Uh, the Pearl Poet, uh, you've ever heard... Uh, they're making it... They just made a really... Say silly looking film. Uh, someone has just done done. Uh, he's actually an Indian actor, I think, is the main actor. I, it looks actually kind of fun, but uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, that crazy story, all that stuff. This is the same era, uh, but in, in Italy, of course, Dante's writing at the end of the thirteenth uh, uh, century in his uh, Tuscan dialect. You have a literate lay populace, which no longer has to depend literally on the clergy to sort of teach them the faith. They have the capacity to read now, and they don't necessarily like what they see. I should point out to you, by the way, a lot of the most virulent criticism of the hierarchy will come from, will actually come from the clergy itself. Because again, part of the growing literacy rate hits the clergy too, because now you'll have you know, clergy down the lower ranks who are like, oh, we can read now, we see what's going on, we don't like this. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, other, the other major poets of the period in England, um, I've never heard of Vision, The Vision Appears, The Plowman. This is a medieval dream poem, allegorical poem. Um, where this it appears the plowman is this simple you know peasant, but a good solid Christian who goes across. It's meant to crit criticize the clergy in the state of church in England. It almost certainly written the, it was attributed to a man named William Langland, almost certainly a monk. Uh, and of course, you get to a later period when you think about the Reformation. Martin Luther, of course, was a, a priest and a monk. So um, a lot of this is uh, being directed by people who are right down yeah, down the social scale in the church, right? They see the imbalance, they don't like it, uh, and so it is there and it is a problem at the time. Although, as you're going to see, as it plays out with Wycliffe, it's going to mean something slightly different uh, in that particular case. Okay, so I'm going to call him the shooting star. 
because if you can see John Wycliffe, you see his dates, he's born around 1330, we think, dies in 1384. Um, his time on the stage is really brief, uh, and it, it really is directly related to all the stuff I've just mentioned. Uh, so we'll go over his, his brief uh, career here. And he's an Oxford Don. Uh, he owes his, his fame and his, um, as such as it was, uh, um, to his reputation as an academic uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, we don't actually have that, many, uh, that much knowledge about his life other than the episodes we're going to talk about here. Uh, we know he's born around 1330. He enters Oxford in 1345. Uh, he's ordained in 1361. Um, he's given several livings around Oxford. If you don't know, this is something, if you're teaching in Oxford, they give you a church somewhere where it has revenue so you can sit there and do your work and that sort of thing. Um, and for whatever reason, he doesn't attain his doctorate until 1372. We're not really sure why, but uh, we do know he has a, a, a burgeoning following in the university. He's popular. Um, for the most part, uh, the works, early works of his career, and this is a problem, by the way, when I mention his works and his ideas, some of them are hard to date. We do know most of the early works that occur before the political episodes he's involved in are all things about, about things like logic and metaphysics. They don't really touch on some of the more controversial stuff, uh, probably until later on. We think, I'll get to this, we think it starts when he starts getting involved uh, with the government of his day. And um, he is still well regarded in, in uh, the history of philosophy. Uh, he's known for being a philosophical realist. I need to explain that term. So I mean that is I don't mean by that he's he's realistic, he's pragmatic, he sees no nothing like that. Uh, philosophical realism has to do with um, uh, about how we know the world and can we know can we understand the world with our reason, right? And a philosophical uh, realist is someone who thinks. Yes, the world is a, a, a rational, intelligible, intelligible place, given our rationality, and we can understand basic truths about it, given our, our using our reason. Um, the most famous of this you know, rational type school, of course, is Thomas Aquinas, the great angelic doctor. Um, there are different degrees, however, of, um, of uh, realism. You can take that in a, a minimalist direction. He, Thomas is known as a sort of moderate realist. Um, he was a more of extreme sort of realist. Uh, he really thought that the, the mind could capture a lot, probably more, I would say, of uh, reality than uh, Thomas did. Um, and he's actually, I say this because uh, the, uh, the opposed uh, view of, of, of knowledge uh, to this is something called nominalism. And that is something that's been, it's been an issue in the Middle Ages since the time of Abelard, Peter Abelard in the 11th and 12th centuries. Um, nominalism is the idea that our reason really can't or, again, there are degrees of, of nominalism as well. You can be more or less extreme. But the basic idea is, no, we, we don't grasp general truths about the world with our reason. We can only grasp, at least, um, we can only know them certain of certainty, individual entities, right? So what we do is we construct general categories in our mind, names that we put these individual entities under, basically, to make sense of the world. I mention that because in the 14th century, nominalism will become the dominant strain among theologians and philosophers in Western universities. He's kind of the last of the great realists of the Middle Ages. And this, I mentioned all this boring stuff, by the way, because it's going to be important to why he embraces heretical positions. In fact, that's the final thing I'll mention about this, is that he's very much influenced by Platonic ideas, particularly Platonic ideas of creation. Um, he is uh, what's called a necessi necessitarian, if you know what that means. It means, by the way, that creation is basically a necessary thing. That is to say, the world had to be sort of created, basically. And yes, that, that would seem to strike against, by the way, the idea that the doctrine that God is free in his creation. 
which is one of the problems he'll have eventually. Um, he took the position, for example, this is the consequence of his ideas, that uh, uh, God could not annihilate matter because if creation is necessary, he can't do that. That's, a, by the way, a basic position of uh, medieval theology. God can annihilate whatever he wants, right? He's free to do that. Um, and he did this because of this hyper-rationalism, this very much influenced by, if you know Platonic, I'm probably confusing you from the looks of it, but Platonic ideals of emanation, as the idea that the universe emanates directly from the first principle. This is a Platonic thing. Uh, I say this, by the way, because he'll apply it to things like Scripture. He will literally come to see um, the Bible as a, a uh, the physical manifestation of the Bible as a direct emanation from God. This will lead him eventually to take a position that effectively it is the only rule of faith. That should sound familiar. That sounds kind of proto-Protestant. It has to a lot of people as well. Um, having said all that, by the way, um, he always did claim uh, to, to be willing to submit his teachings to the judgment of the church. He never did formally say, yeah, church is all wrong. He just took positions that were very much at odds with it uh, and based on some things I don't think you can reconcile in the end. So that's the Oxford Don. So how does he get in trouble? Well, we have to go back to, uh, back to politics for a lot, actually, unfortunately. I need to talk to you about a man named John of Gaunt. I mentioned the king at the time in the 1370s is Edward III. John of Gaunt is his younger brother. Um, and if you know how... Um, Medieval monarchies work, or medieval just inheritance works, um, they base inheritance on the primogeniture, right? So the oldest son inherits the throne of the crown, uh, and therefore his sons. Now, uh, the son who's going to inherit, um, did I say he was his brother? I meant John of Gaunt was his son. My, my brain went dead. Sorry, I just confused you worse. Um, no, um, uh, John of Gaunt is uh, one of his oldest sons. His eldest son is uh, Edward, the, he's called the Black Prince because he's a great commander, he wears black armor, that's why he got the name, but um, he, he's the one who leads uh, some of those major victories over the French in France initially. Point is, by the uh, 1370s, both Edward and his, uh, and uh, both Edward the king and Edward his son are in very ill health. And in fact, there has been a turn against the government. In fact, in 1371, this is very important to understand, um, the government had been run mostly by clergymen. They were mostly, it was mostly bishops and cardinals in positions of power in the, in the actual, the king's government. And probably as a result of, of again, losses uh, on the continent in the Hundred Years' War, they're all expelled in 1371 and replaced by laymen. And I say this because John of Gaunt is normally identified uh, at uh, Edward III's court and later on with a party which is supposed to be anti-clerical. And... Uh, I'll mention this going forward, but seemingly he's opposed to clerical influence in the government. He gets a reputation for being uh, anti-clerical in a much more broader way, partly because of his association with with uh, with Wycliffe, but I'll come to that. I mention a lot of that because we first get really records of what uh, Wycliffe is doing outside of Oxford in 1374. He is sent on a commission, uh, uh, a commission to meet with papal delegates uh, at Bruges in 1374, and his name appears in that list. And, um, again, the first time he seems to be used by the government as a sort of emissary toward the papacy. And I mention this because I also mentioned the ill health of Edward the King and his son. By 1376, Gaunt is basically running the government. Both of them are so ill they can't really do it. So he becomes essentially the power in the country. And this will lead to, among other things, a lot of bitterness toward him. <laughs> uh, there was a parliament held in 1376, if you don't know how the parliament works. The way the government, basically what parliaments were basically created for was to call wealthy subjects together so you could tax them, so kings could tax them. 
And they're doing this, of course, why? In the midst of the, uh, midst of the Hundred Years' War, to get more money for the war effort. So you can imagine how, how much the people who are being called to this parliament really want to pay taxes. They really don't. Uh, in 1376, it gets this name in the, histor in the history, the later history of this, the so-called good parliament meets, and it attacks the government. Specifically, it attacks Gaunt and some of his ministers. They actually impeach uh, some of his ministers, some of the ministers of government. They're his friends in the party in the government. Um, and, um, and so you have this. And this is, by the way, this is completely extraordinary. The parliament, as we understand it today, is totally different than the Middle Ages. It's not supposed to do any of this. It's supposed to show up, grumble, and then, then pay their taxes, basically. So things are getting really heated, my point, in the country because of the way things are going. Uh, and it's at this point in 1376 that we seem to see Wycliffe enter the service of John of Gaunt. Uh, and I mention this because it's about this time, again, it's hard to know exactly. He uh, has come up with a theory of um, property, property ownership, which he calls dominion. And effectively what this means, his theory of dominion, is that basically... Uh, only those in a state of grace, at least in the clerical state, can hold property. That is to say, if you're a wicked priest, if you've been whatever, uh, I don't know, doing something hanky with the, the, some, some local uh, magnate's wife, or you've been stealing from the till, something like this, you basically forfeit your right um, to, uh, to share any property because, at least in the clerical state, um, you get this through grace. And you forfeit that if you sin that way, if you sin in a serious way. More particularly speaking, he says, if you're a clergyman, if you become sinful and corrupt, the civil power can forcibly take this property from you or from the church. Now, you can kind of see by that, that theory, of course, in this, in this age where people are very anti-clerical, they don't like their church, they their property, and you have a, a seemingly a faction running the government that is anti-clerical. They might like that idea. Uh, and so it occurs, it, um, at least in the sources, that you begin to see Wycliffe appearing in uh, the entourage of John of Gaunt. Now, uh, I have said all this, from what we can tell, it used to be thought that he was, Gaunt shared many of these sort of extreme opinions. As far as we can tell, he didn't. Um, his uh, his anti-clericalism probably, again, probably focused mostly on government. He probably didn't want, didn't want clergymen in the government at that point. Uh, we say this because I just told you what his theory of uh, Wycliffe's theory about clerical property is. Um, um, Gaunt, on the other hand, we have plenty of records of this, uh, donated plentifully to Carmelite orders, to Franciscan orders, to Franciscan um, friaries. Uh, he subsidized them. He patronized them. There's no inkling that he ever thought that they should have their property taken away from them. Um, in fact, it's probably this theory of dominion, however, that does make Wycliffe really popular um, because the church is, uh, again, there's a lot of angst about this. Um, but um, he is still, um, at this point, he's gotten notoriety for this. He's called before, he's called to uh, London in 1377 um, to answer for his teaching about dominion uh, at St. Paul's Cathedral uh, to a committee of bishops. Now, when Wycliffe arrived, he is accompanied by Thomas Percy, who is the Earl Marshal of England, but also by John of Gaunt. This is where we get the idea that they're sort of, you know, um, closely allied. Before the trial can even begin, um, Percy begins a shouting match with the Bishop of London. Uh, we're not sure what they were shouting about. They start arguing with each other. Gaunt soon joins in. They start screaming at each other. 
There's a crowd there who wants to see all this. They start getting uh, rowdy. Um, they begin to threaten Gaunt and Wycliffe. And at that moment, Gaunt says, the hell with this. He grabs Wycliffe and takes him away. So the first trial basically ends uh, breaking up like this. And again, at this point, um, uh, you shouldn't think of this as being Gaunt. We don't even know how much Gaunt actually knows about Wycliffe or if he's read his writings. We do actually know he, he knows a lot about it. But uh, at this point, he's just a guy in his entourage who he's using for certain purposes. It's something to keep in mind. You know, even though there's an anti-clerical partyism within the government, again, theologians are still the most learned people in the country. So he's protecting his protege at this point. Uh, later that year, however, uh, in 1377, the Pope got wind of these teachings about dominion, and he issued several bulls um, directed at both the English church, but also the English government, demanding they actually bring uh, they bring um, Wycliffe uh, to be examined um, for the bishops. And for whatever reason, it takes, I'm not really sure why, it takes a while for the bulls to get there, so it's only in March of 1378. Um, um, he comes to London again, appears before the bishops this time at Lambeth Palace. Just as about the trial is about to begin, a messenger arrives from the Queen Mother, from the mother of, of um, at this point, Richard II. Edward uh, has died. Richard II, his grandson, has taken the throne. Um, and um, with an instruction that uh, the bishop should not for pass a formal sentence on Wycliffe. For reasons, by the way, we still don't know why or who did that. It was, again, for a long time presumed to be Gaunt's doing, but we don't think so. Um, again, the, the thinking, by the way, is that this was causing a problem. Especially John of Gaunt, I think. They wanted to keep the peace. The people were riled up anyway. In any case, they questioned him for a few hours and uh, forbid him to preach his views, but then they have to let him go. And so he's basically uh, out of it here. And this is probably the high point of his career as a public figure. He's been tried twice. Nothing's happened. Uh, he seems to be popular. He's, you know, he's on the party of, he's with the poor. And I should mention something that's already beginning to happen. I'll mention it more later. But um, he's already at this point, probably maybe toward 1380, he will eventually start having, it's probably not him, it's probably some, some of his, uh, the priests who work with him at Oxford, begins to start translating parts of the Bible into English. And what he will eventually do in a couple of years, he will send, he'll call them his poor priests, but they're actually laymen. He'll send them out into the countryside to preach to poor people in the countryside. And again, this is one of the things that makes him popular for a time. But his triumph doesn't last long um, because he had a lot of radical views and began to sort of enunciate them. In particular, 1380 is uh, the beginning of his downfall. Um, and Gaunt, by the way, to the end, would protect him from any sort of reprisal, if you're wondering why. He never actually is, during his lifetime, formally condemned. Uh, he becomes more bold. It's probably around 1378 he begins writing on the church and the Eucharist. And again, I mentioned the Eucharist by attacking transubstantiation. Basically, he denies it. He basically says the Eucharist, uh, the host, is basically, quote-unquote, an effectual sign no more. Uh, he denies that it can physically become the body and blood of Christ. And if you're wondering, by the way, where this comes from, it goes back to his, again, I mentioned his rationalism. One of the things about realists is they don't like, they're not really good, they're not really heavy on, they're, they're not very comfortable with things like symbolism and allegory. And of course, as you know, late medieval piety centers on the Eucharist in a major way, and they love all sorts of symbolism, and they love to play with words and stuff like this. People who are hyper-rationalistic, who take a philosophical, philosophically realistic view of language, they don't like this at all. And this is where this is coming from in a lot of ways with uh, Wycliffe. Um, 
And in fact, by the way, he begins teaching that the church, by the way, is, uh, is something effectively separate from its institutional form. Again, the idea that the church is basically the elect, that uh, they exi- the elect are sort of, you know, elect from all eternity, right? So essentially outside of time, therefore they exist almost invisibly apart from the, the visible church. He's beginning to broach these types of uh, theories by, the, by 1380. Uh, and he's quickly condemned. In 1381, an Oxford committee is, uh, condemns his views on the Eucharist. They forbid him to teach these views. Uh, and it's about this time, uh, Gaunt actually goes to Oxford and effectively tells him to stop doing this. Uh, and so he's, his patron at this point is getting... There's no evidence, by the way, Gaunt ever embraced any of this stuff. Uh, one of the final nails in the coffin popular, uh, for his popularity, however, was the Great Revolt of 1381. Um, and um, this was a massive revolt of the peasantry. I mentioned this earlier. In June of that year, um, massive uh, bodies of peasants descended on London from the surrounding counties. Um, demanding a repeal of the poll tax, which had been imposed by Richard II's government. Richard II was like 10 years old when he became king, so he's not really ruling. Gaunt still uh, one of the powers behind the throne at this point. And they imposed this tax because Gaunt has, he's still duck, ducking for policy. He wants to go do things in Spain. It's a long story. Uh, it draws the ire of, when I say peasantry, let me be clear about something. Remember I mentioned how the Black Death is good for the peasantry and raises their wages? It's a wealthier peasantry than it had before. And a peasant in law in the Middle Ages doesn't mean someone who's, like, groveling in the dirt. It means someone who's just, by law, not noble. You could be people who have lots of money who are getting hit with these taxes and they don't like it, is my point. Uh, and they descend on London. Uh, they break into the city. And they also, by the way, I should have mentioned all these tax rolls I mentioned. They're not just uh, um, directed against the government. They're directed against the church and the tithe. Uh, they will break into London in 1381 with the peasants. Uh, actually, they meet with the king first. Then things get broken up because the king's retainers are afraid that he's going to get mobbed. And uh, after that happens, they, they force the city gates open. They break into the Archbishop of Canterbury's palace. They kill him. They kill a bunch of other people, too. They cut his head off, and they put it on a pike, and they parade it around the city. Um, and um, eventually the king will, and this is like 14 at this point, pretty brave. He goes out and convinces them to leave. They scatter. Eventually they track the leaders down and execute them. Long story short, but but here's the interesting thing about the uh, about the, uh, the revolt. There's no evidence that these peasants were uh, motivated by Wycliffe's teachings. However, the revolt started uh, when we got to London uh, on the Feast of Corpus Christi. And again, there's some thought that again, and by the way, there's no evidence of this. People at the time thought, hey, they're reacting to Wycliffe's teaching on the, on the Eucharist. And so this blackened his name basically forever after. Um, and, uh, and well, I'll get to the Lollards in a second, his, um, uh, his supporters. Uh, a year later, uh, his revolt, uh, excuse me, after the revolt, uh, his uh, 24 propositions are taken out of his works or condemned by Oxford. Um, uh, and the Bishop of Oxford begins to purge his supporters from the faculty. And so there's a full-on, like, getting rid of this guy, getting rid of his associates. Uh, he has to re- he basically leave at this point, probably warned by Gaunt to get out of there, which he does. He retires to a place called Lutterworth, I think it's Lutter, Lutterworth or Luttermore. Anyway, he goes to his livings, uh, where eventually in 1384 he has a stroke and dies after saying Mass. Um, which, by the way, again, he dies still in communion with the Church, so he remains part of the Church until his death, mainly because of the protection of uh, John of Gaunt. So that's the brief career of John Wycliffe. His followers are a different story. Uh, and so the last part of this is the rise and fall of the Lollardy, which uh, we've already kind of had this um, explained to us before. 
um, even for the lecture of Joe, um, the term Lawler was first applied uh, to Wycliffe's followers in 1382 by an Oxford, uh, by a Cistercian monk in Oxford. And it indeed was a slur taken from um, um, a Flemish word for mumbler or idler. The people who ran their mouths and, and weren't doing what they're supposed to, basically, right? People who were agitated. You think of those as the agitators, basically, in modern terminology, right? Um, and um, what's going to happen initially is that he had several uh, priest followers. Um, uh, I don't have their names in here for some whatever, uh, whatever reason. Uh, Nicholas Hereford's one of them. They're priests at Oxford. They're very interesting what happens with them. Um, they all wind up uh, basically uh, recanting, uh, going back to the communion. At least two of them do at one point. One will uh, revert back to the Lollard and eventually be uh, executed at a later point. But after his uh, priests are suppressed in Oxford, mostly uh, the leadership of this movement passes to laymen and uh, mostly laymen and women, uh, particularly the hands of those lay preachers that Wycliffe had sent out into the countryside a few years before his death. Um, uh, people like uh, there's a priest named William Winderby who was uh, again a peasant, was uh, educated, but he could uh, read English, uh, and it was kept alive by lay uh, by the patrons of, of knights in counties around. Um, Places like Coventry and Oxford. This is in the center part of the country. You don't seem to see the map, but it's around Oxford in the central counties. It gets about as far north as, um, I think, into Leicester. I mean, some of the counties that I can't remember that off the top of my head, but it doesn't get too far north, but it does spread to the center of the country. Um, and um, what's going to happen, it, it will, uh, I'll talk about this in a moment, the 12 conclusions, but um, it's going to emphasize, it's going to sort of, I'll say prey on, but it's going to, filter into areas where you already had traditions of lay piety in the Middle Ages, which were based on English. I mentioned this because it's going to be the big defining feature of Lollardy is their, their translation of the Bible, right? It's in English. There is a Lollard Bible, which, again, we almost think, for the most part, Wycliffe may have like, you know, charged his priest to translate. Piety didn't do anything of himself. Uh, but they'll only worship, they'll only have their devotions in English. But, even Duffy's is a um, famous historian, he mentions this. There's already like, traditions of English um, language uh, devotion, perfectly orthodox in 14th century England. Um, but what makes the Lollards different is they reject a lot of things that are central to um, uh, medieval Catholicism. Uh, they emphasize this lay preaching at the expense of the liturgy. Um, they will attack the priesthood, basically, again, this idea that you know a priest, a priest can't hold property if he's sinful. They'll, they'll tend to go... Again, depends on which which document we're looking at, which group you're looking at. Some will go so far as to say if they sin, they no longer they no longer have any priestly authority, right? This is a this is something that recurs throughout church history. This idea that the the priesthood lives or fails with the morality of the priest. But they also attack popular devotions like pilgrimages, venerations of relics, images. Um, in twelve ninety four, in fact, you're going to have uh, some of these lay knights of the Shire. Um, Prevent, uh, present what they call their 12 conclusions to uh, Parliament 1399, which they will completely ignore. Um, and you can find this, by the way, in a quick Google search. They mention a lot of these things. They'll reject things like priestly celibacy. Uh, so they're attacking uh, the clerical priesthood with, uh, um, um, with the idea that the Bible is the sole rule of faith. And in fact, although the 12 conclusions don't really mention that, it becomes the major thing that unites them. Um, uh, and and uh, fires their imagination. They don't usually mention you know, Wycliffe's ideas about the church of the Bible. And again, once you get cut off from that sort of the learned people who eventually started this, it, it becomes more about that. You, you literally have 
you know, what, what do the law lords do? They meet in their homes, they, they read biblical materials, uh, stuff, you know, the Ten Commandments, the Gospel, stuff like that. It's like a, it's like a Bible study. I mention this because um, um, you read enough of this stuff, I didn't have a lot more sympathy for the, for the law lords than I do for you know, Wycliffe for reasons that should be fairly obvious. Wycliffe was a fairly cantankerous, uh, cranky sort of guy. The law lords, for the most part, were just poor people who wanted, as we're going to see, a little more simple faith. What happens to break them are the persecutions that follow upon a major event, a political event in, uh, in uh, English life. When Henry of Bolingbroke, who was the son of John of Gaunt, uh, usurps the throne, uh, he uh, captures Richard II, has him deposed. If you know, by the way, you're Shakespeare, this is all in his plays, you read them, they're great. Um, and um, he becomes Henry IV in 1399. And... Um, he has a problem. He basically, and by the way, Richard II is murdered in prison. And his problem is that he murdered the king. <laughs> and he is completely without, and there's a lot of people that don't think he's really the king. He has no legitimacy. So one of the first things he starts to do is he gets the parliament to pass a law, um, effectively against heresy, but targeted at the law lords. Um, which for the first time um, uh, enacts a punishment of death by burning for heretics in England. Death by burning had been something in Roman law, which is why it became standard on the continent in places like France and elsewhere. Um, this was introduced. We're pretty sure this was the Lancastrian effort to make themselves look orthodox. Like, hey, we're going to get rid of the heretics to try to bolster our, uh, bolster our reign. Uh, later on, the Bishop... Is it the Bishop of Arundel or Thomas Arundel? I can't remember which one. That's bad to admit this, but Thomas of Arundel is a bishop, um, I believe the Bishop of London. Um, he, along with some of the bishops, will draw um, regulations to restrict preaching. Again, this is one of the big aspects of their movement. Uh, but also, they will begin to restrict what can be published, what devotional materials can be published in English. Because this will be one of the major ways you identify mollards in this period. Uh, and in fact, um, you will have, you still have records, uh, bishops complaining about their existence um, as late as 1430, well, that's a plague or something. But really, for the most part, things die off after 1430. And in fact, um, between, 18, between 1401 and 1485, um, only 11 people are actually uh, executed for heresy as lollards, which is kind of a small number. In fact, there are actually more, um, there are more Franciscan friars who are executed for preaching against the Lancastrian regime than there are lollards for heresy in that period. Uh, and they're preaching, by the way, because they think they're, they're usurpers, obviously. Um, the one exception to this, by the way, and again, this also gets us into... Um, um, Shakespeare territory. Um, the last sort of major hurrah of the Lollards was the uh, uh, the knight, Sir John Oldcastle, who was known to be a Lollard. He was a friend of the son of Henry IV, Henry, who became Henry V. Again, you should know from the play, this is the guy that Falstaff is based on. Uh, Oldcastle had been a military man. He'd served with Henry IV. Um, he was eventually uh, convicted for heresy in 1413, but Henry V was, a, was his friend. He was going to let him escape. Uh, instead, he tried to hatch a plot with his Lollard allies to kidnap the king and force him to do sorts of sorts of things. It was kind of nuts and easily dispersed. Um, he was captured again, escaped again, was finally put to death in 1417. And that's when most of the actual Lollards were executed for treason uh, after his uh, so-called... It's a rebellion. Really, he just started a riot outside of London. It didn't really amount to much. Uh, but that's where you'll get... Um, 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 that's where we will get the, the high point of it, and it will decline precipitously after 1430. And yet it will survive into the 16th century, 
And the reason why it survives is, um, again, it's something Ethan, even Duffy, the historian, has talked about, is that there is, um, even though Lollardy was identified with reading the Bible in English, um, there was a, this Orthodox tradition of lay devotion uh, in English, which embraced English devotional books. Uh, and in fact, Lollard would actually read um, English devotional books by well, Orthodox Catholics, not much problem. Uh, the same wasn't true of vice versa, but still, um, this is probably why it lasted as long as it did. And um, as I mentioned before, this is, again, this is kind of a, this kind of parallels what happened um, previously in the Middle Ages with, say, the Franciscans. If you know the origins of the Franciscan and Dominican orders, they were responding to um, heretical movements where uh, the faithful really weren't being, maybe weren't being fed well enough by the established church, right? You know, um, uh, preaching wasn't good enough, maybe the uh, rural clergy weren't educated enough. This is where basically Francis, St. Dominic, come in, those sorts of things. Um, and it's part and parcel of a, a, a wider uh, movement in the latter part of the Middle Ages for um, people desiring a simpler sort of faith. If you're wondering why, because it really was marginal. Most people hated it. I don't mean to suggest, um, I didn't mean to say there's a lot that was great about Lollardy. The most attractive part is the Bible reading stuff, right? Um, but you read their materials, most, most historians, and Wycliffe especially, Wycliffe is a, a dour, sort of puritanical person, it's pretty, it's pretty thin gruel. It's very iconoclastic. It wouldn't go very, if you know anything about medieval churches, how, how they're decorated, how elaborate the rituals are. Um, um, the, uh, the great Dutch historian, Johan Huizinga, once called the, the culture of the later Middle Ages a culture of elaboration. And we meant by the, what that was that in any arena of life, in ritual, church ritual, in art, painting, in, in, um, in preaching, Every sort of thought had to be elaborate. I'll give you an example why there's a reaction against this. Erasmus told a story one time that when he was in, um, everyone knows who Desiderius Erasmus is. He's the humanist reformer. Kind of, he's a little bit antagonist to the, to the church, but he's a reformer, he's a humanist. Anyway, he told the story how um, he was in Paris for Lent one year, and the preacher <coughs> preached every single day of Lent a sermon on the prodigal son. And he did this by embellishing the story out of his imagination every single day. Like, whatever was left, left out supposedly of the biblical story, he would, like, you know, the prodigal son goes into this farm when he's, when, he's, when he's on his father's farm. What is he eating? He'll go, like, he'll give a whole story. He just elaborated everything, making stuff up. And Erasmus hated this, by the way. My point is, like, medieval, the medieval church was this very in-your-face sensory intellectual experience. And for some people, that's probably going to rub them the wrong way. There's a desire for a simpler, more biblical faith. This is where you get things like um, the imitation of Christ, uh, Thomas Aquinas, the, um, the Brethren of the Common Life, that um, order that emerges in, in the, the Low Countries, right? Um, the idea you're focusing solely on Christ, and you're not you're not you're not so much getting into all the externals, basically. Um, I, I, this is why I mentioned why I have some sympathy for the Lollards and not maybe for Wycliffe. Uh, to all which is prelude to, you do have some of the reappear at the end of the Middle Ages. Uh, two were executed under, by Henry VII uh, in 1511. And then about 10 years later, around 1520, during the Henry VIII's reign, you begin to have, he begins to crack down on heresy before, <laughs> before, he, before he goes into it himself. 
Uh, and those are the last prosecutions we know of for uh, Lollardy, because he, of course, will be swamped under by the Reformation itself. Uh, and it sort of dies that death there. Which, of course, leads us to the, the final question, which we have to ask, okay, all this sounds pretty clearly like what's going to happen with Luther, what's going to happen in England. So the Reformation question, is there a connection with Wycliffe, Lollardy, and uh, the Reformation? Well, first we have to talk about what a Lollard is. Because honestly, it's not really, even in the sources, they don't, it's a term of abuse, right? And terms of abuse are never used consistently. Um, and so that means is there might be some people who get called Lollards who just like, they like English devo devotional works in English. And that's something to keep in mind when we get these types of accusations. Again, all of our records come from, you know, the inquisitorial courts and stuff like that. So naturally historians are suspicious of this, but... Um, uh, we have to be cautious with it because there were orthodox, perfectly orthodox laymen who are like, yeah, I just like the whatever, the English version of the Ten Commandments or something like this. Um, I, would, I would actually compare this, by the way, when you use terms like that. Like it's, uh, it, it can be unhelpful sometimes to sort of lump everybody together. Think of the comparison I'm thinking of as the terms uh, we use today, liberal, conservative in the church, right? Those can, those can, you can get a lot of things under the rubric of conservative in the Catholic Church. A lot of things that aren't necessarily, don't necessarily go together. Uh, and so we, we do know there was a movement of Lollards. But again, it's not always this cut and dried thing when we're talking about heresy. The second thing is, um, as far as Lollardy goes, there used to be some thought among historians, modern and otherwise, that yes, Lollards sort of played directly into the Reformation in England. They were sort of waiting there, hidden in the depths of whatever. Um, this is almost certainly false. Um, there really is, oh, did I skip, I skipped Wy Wycliffe, oh, sorry. Um, oh, my notes is reversed. I'll come back to Wycliffe in a moment, he's more interesting. Yeah, there is no connection. <laughs> Long story short, there's almost none, as far as we can tell. Uh, in the English Reformation, um, almost all the English reformers were devout Catholics before they became Protestants. Uh, none of them came from any sort of heretical background we can find. Wycliffe, on the other hand, does have an indirect influence on the Reformation in a wider sense. Um, as far as we know, no 16th century reformer ever read his writings. I, I know Luther will mention him occasionally. Yeah, he, didn't know anything about <laughs> he had no idea about his actual writings. Um, he did influence, however, um, there were Czech students in Oxford while he was there who brought his writings back to the University of Prague in the very part of the 1400s. And they will have some influence, we're still not clear, on the other great, and this may be another lecture, <laughs> they'll definitely get to him next week, next month, I should say, um, the other great sort of heresiarch of the late Middle Ages, Jan Hus, who was, uh, again, a um, university professor in Prague. Um, honestly, he didn't, none of his, none of his more, his direct, directly heretical teachings on the Eucharist and the church really show up in Hus. Um, he mentions him. He, he refuses to repudiate him. He was asked to repudiate him by the Council of Constance, and he doesn't. But uh, for the most part, the big thing he takes from uh, Wycliffe is his view of reform, of his um, um, targeting, if you like, um, immoral clergy. That's really what he gets associated with in terms of Hus. And Hus, of course, that is someone um, uh, Luther will have no problem drawing on. Um, and there's never really been, like I said, a consensus about how much uh, Wycliffe actually was influenced on the Reformation. Uh, he gets a reputation later on. I, I think I mentioned this in the little blurb for, my, for, the, for this uh, lecture. 
Uh, one of his modern biographers called him the evening star of classicism and the morning star of the Reformation. And it's just, it's not really, it's not really allowed to direct. It really isn't. Uh, which is interesting because, again, he does anticipate a lot of the things that become Protestantism. But it's just, it, it's just not, it's too, out, too far outside the mainstream for that to actually work, I think. Uh, and so his influence is actually a lot more limited, even though he is kind of a proto-Protestant in some ways. And then finally, one, this is, you know, one last thing you can take from all this, and going back to Wycliffe and the Lollards. Um, keeping in mind what's going on with the papacy, in Avignon, and there's a schism, uh, the confusion of the time can, to a certain degree, excuse Wycliffe for like, okay, he's attacking the Eucharist, things that are basic. I, I confess, being someone who's been in the academic world, I have virtually no sympathy for Wycliffe. He sounds like a an arrogant SOB and a know-it-all, and this is, just, <laughs> uh, I don't like him uh, from what I, I know of him. And apparently, no, I mean, everyone who has looked at his work, unless they're Protestants, they want to make a, a big uh, to-do about him. And they do eventually, by the way. It's, it's a modern construction uh, when they make him a precursor, a direct precursor. The only, um, the only 16th, 16th century writer who makes Wycliffe a, a direct descendant, and this is English only, uh, of the Reformation in England is John Fox. If you know who this is, John Fox was a printer for Elizabeth II, who wrote a very, very famous book in England called The Acts and Monuments of the English Martyrs. And besides the Bible, it was the book everybody knew in England as a Protestant. And it told the tale of all the... It basically turned medieval heretics into heroes who were proto-Protestants and it was part of this. Um, nobody really... Uh, the modern uh, biography that made him the... that uh, called him the Morning Star of the Reformation was the 1920s. It's been debunked. Nobody thinks it has that much inference. But it was John Fox for centuries who had that... Uh, Propaganda, which is basically propaganda. Um, finally, just a last note on heresy and charity. I mentioned this because um, I was telling um, Hannah before, I was an atheist before I became Catholic, and if you're an intellectual type, you read your way into the church. One of the first things, the first things you'll notice, coming to come to come to liturgy, you come to a mass, and you talk to people afterward, and you get to realize people in the pews, they don't actually really believe all the things you read when you kind of read yourself into the church. And uh, I, I was never that guy. I was never aggressive, but I was like in my mind, like you're kind of like, not condemning, but like you, you like you get, you know, you can, you can fall into being a mental heresy hunter. And uh, I think because heresy is, heresy is a bad thing and the church should take, I think, a strong line against it, uh, especially in clergy because they are public figures. They're people take their example and that's, that's a problem. I've learned to be a lot more charitable. This is why I mentioned I have I have some sympathy with the Lollards. Um, they they just wanted a simpler faith. They wanted to hear the word of God in their own language. Right? There's a really bad book um, <laughs> uh, by a man named Stephen Greenblatt. We don't even know who this is. He's a literature scholar. Mostly, I find repugnant. But he wrote this book called Renaissance Self Fashioning. Uh, it's a dumb book. But anyway, but he wrote this. There's a great chapter in it though uh, on the early Protestant reformers. I mention it because he talks about what it would have been the psychological effect of hearing, like, like this is li like literally God's message to you in your own language for the first time. And so I, I, this is why I say I have a lot of sympathy for the Lollards, um, especially because they were caught up in all this political nonsense going on. Um, and so hopefully we can take from this that we, I think we need to work uh, as Catholics to be it's tough to be firm and gentle at the same time. Um, you need to be firm, but have some charity toward people who don't understand the faith as well, haven't been taught, um, 
And um, I don't know, that, that's all I have basically for you. So uh, yeah, and so there we go. Thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate it. Uh, any questions uh, that you have or 